If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. If you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Uh, I've asked Miss Carol Pack if she would read uh, our verse to us this morning. dead battery. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Uh, Father, thank you that we have a confident, strong certainty that you will come back. I thank you for this text of scripture, which is probably one of the most beautiful in the Bible that describes what that's going to look like uh, when Jesus, the warrior, returns for his people. Uh, So I pray today that we would be comforted by this, that we would be convicted by this, Uh, And I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you today, that you would uh, save them today and change their life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Believe it or not, Thanksgiving, right around the corner. And then soon is Christmas. Um, And now for some of us, it goes in that order. Thanksgiving and then Christmas. I get it. You got some of you freaks out there. They had your Christmas tree up before Halloween. Jeez, right? But, but when, it, when it comes to that time of the year, one of the big things that we talk about every year, in fact, one of the candles on the Advent candle is the candle of hope. And we begin hearing that word a lot. And as human beings, don't we just use that word a lot? Hope? I, I've used it a lot this week. I, I hope the Cowboys don't finish 8-8. Eight and eight. We hope the kids have a good Christmas. We hope the economy turns around. Uh, I hope dad comes home from work early so we can play football. I hope my family arrives safely for the holidays, or at least some of you hope that, right? Uh, A good tailwind is our only hope of arriving on time. We use the word hope. We we use it a lot. John Piper tells us, though, that that when we use the word hope, we use it in three senses. First, a desire for something good in the future. Two, the thing in the future that we desire. 
And then finally, three, the basis or reason, reason for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. And Dr. Piper goes on to tell us that often when we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty. Right? I mean, as human beings, we, we do. Right? So when I say, I hope the Cowboys don't finish 8-8, eight and, eight, and in the back of my mind, I've got too many years of going, may happen. Right? So when we say, I hope dad gets home early, it means I don't have any certainty that he will get home on time, only the desire that he does. Our hope is that the family arrives safely, which means we don't know if they will or not, but that is our desire that they do. A good tailwind is our only hope of arriving on time, means a good tailwind would bring us our desired goal, but we can't be sure that we will get one. So when we express hope as human beings, oftentimes we're expressing uncertainty. But the Bible does not define hope that way. Anytime you read it in the Bible, it means something different. Biblical hope means a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. So biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects that it will happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, Mariah read this earlier. Paul writes this. Speaking of Abraham, he says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which, is as, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the faith that justified, the faith that saved Abraham was faith in the future work of God. And verse 18 tells us that in hope, he believed against hope. I love that. He believed against hope. In other words, he's believing against the human definition of hope. He believed that he would become the father of many nations. Against hope means that from the human standpoint, there was no hope. He was too old to have a child. His wife was barren, but biblical hope is never based on what is possible with man. So biblical hope looks away from the promise, uh, looks away from man to the promise of God. And when it does, it becomes the full assurance of hope. Again, Dr. Piper tells us, whenever faith in God looks to the future, it can be called hope. Whenever hope rests on the word of God, it can be called faith. So today, when we talk about the return of Christ, we should never talk about the return of Christ in the way of just saying, well, I hope Jesus comes back. Well, I guess he's going to come back. I, I mean, maybe he's going to come soon. Like, we should never say it with uncertainty, which is how we say it, isn't it? Oftentimes we, we say it with uncertainty because I think in our minds, we just think, oh yeah, I guess he's coming back. Or if we're real honest, there's a lot of us in here that be like, man, I don't know if I want him to come back. Makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? And so we don't spend any time thinking about it. But when we say, hey, Jesus is coming back, we say it with certainty. 
Especially as we get around this time of the year and the holidays and we think back to his first advent, we should look forward to the second one saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back, Jesus. And we do it with certainty. In fact, that's how the, 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 the New Testament writers wrote about it. In Titus 2, 13 and 14, Paul says this. He says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. I like what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, that doesn't sound like somebody who just kind of maybe sort of thinks he's coming back. He's like, oh no, be ready. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So listen, our hope as Christians is in the concrete, tangible, physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Paul said it was our blessed hope. And if you think that there is another option, if you think there is something else that is worthy of your focus and your faith, then friends, you've been lied to. And this morning, I'm not here to lie to you. I'm just here to tell you the truth that Jesus is coming back and that Jesus is the only hope worthy of your confidence. And I love this text today because this text clearly lays out what that's gonna look like. It's probably one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible as it describes what it's gonna be like when Jesus comes back. And I think that John does this and he's so vivid with the imagery in this because it's this strong expectation, it's this confidence that he has that it will happen. And he wants you and I to see it and to feel it and to walk out of this place going, yes, Jesus is coming back. So just very quickly, let me kind of lay out the timeline of events for you, uh, or the one that, that I've presented to you as a church. Again, we may disagree on the timeline, which is really all we disagree on. The themes are still the same. Uh, the overall point's still the same. Jesus wins, he's coming back, amen? Okay. So first we've said that, that there won't be a secret rapture where Christians are removed from the earth before the persecution begins. I'll say this, I believe this with all of my heart. If Paul and Peter didn't get out of here, before it got bad, what makes you think y'all are so holy? I mean, right? I know I'm not. So we're not going to get out of here before the persecution begins. And the reason why John calls us over and over again in Revelation to endure and to hold fast is because we need to endure and hold fast for what's coming. Second, Jesus will return with a company of angels and all of those who've died in faith. All of those saints who have gone before us will return with Jesus. Paul talks about this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We do this one at funerals all the time, right? They're, un they're, they're uninformed about what's happening. They have some weird ideas. And so Paul tells them, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left with, will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
So third, very visibly, those of us who are still alive, we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and we will receive our glorified bodies. Amen. And then fourth, we will then accompany Christ as he continues his descent to earth to defeat his enemies. And this is all that's described today in our text. So look with me, if you will, in Revelation 19. Let's look at verse 11 again. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's what John sees next. And the angel tells him to look and suddenly heaven is open and he says, behold, which that's an old fashioned way, but it's another word to say, look, it's a very strong way to say, look, turn your eyes, fix your eyes. And John says, look at your hope. And I love it. He says, what is your hope? Your hope is in a person named Jesus Christ. And then he goes into great detail to describe this return because he wants you and I to have this same confident expectation. So he sees heaven open up. Now this is really cool. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus made when he called his disciples. So, so keep your finger right here in Revelation 19. Flip over to John. Flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter one, so Jesus um, has been calling his disciples. He's going around, he's telling them to follow him. And in verse 43 of John chapter one, check this out. He calls Philip and Nathanael. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these. In verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. Now the you in that sense is plural. Your Bible may have a footnote. Remember, all the disciples are standing with him at that point. So in the Greek, that is a plural you. He's speaking to all the disciples. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man and so here we are 60 years later it's 96 a.d john's on the prison island of patmos jesus fulfilled this prophecy what happens heaven's opened up and behold look there's your hope do you know look is the second most frequent command in revelation it's used over and over again look you know what the most frequent command is in revelation do not be afraid that's the number one command used in the book of revelation do not be afraid. So church, you don't need to be afraid. 
I get it. There's a lot of uncertainty. We're nervous. We're scared. Don't be afraid. John's saying, do not be afraid. Look, your hope is coming. Look, see who is in control. See who's on his way. See who's pressing in on the world even now. And so what we're seeing here is the opening act of the final scene of history. And what does John see? Jesus. And he sees Jesus on a white horse. I love it. Now remember that's figurative language. Right? You might be talking to somebody one day and they might want to disprove the Bible and they'd be like, well, it says he's coming in the clouds in other parts of the Bible and it says he's on a horse here. It's figurative language. All that matters is that Jesus is coming. But what he's trying to get across to us right here is that the second time he comes back, it'll be for a different reason. So in the first century, any time a king rode a donkey into town, he was riding to peace. Jesus did that on his first coming, did he not? Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into town on a donkey and he fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But when, he, when a king rode a horse, that meant he was going to war. So right here, it means that Jesus is coming back to conquer and to rule. So he's riding to what we as Christians have always referred to as the last battle. But here's the cool thing. The battle never happens. Nothing happens. It's never fought. It doesn't have to be fought. You know why it doesn't have to be fought? Because Jesus has already fought the battle. He's already won the battle. We read this earlier. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Daryl Johnson tells us that the final battle need not be fought because the final battle has already been fought and won at the cross. Jesus now simply rides to implement what he's already done. So on the cross, he defeated Satan's sin and death. He's coming back the second time to finally say, hey, sin, no more. Right? Death, gone. Satan, yeah, I got a special place for you. It's called hell. Let's go. That's what he's doing. That's why Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary, always says that we work not towards the victory, but we work from the victory. Jesus has already won. We're working from what he's already done. So the victory was won at the cross, and here Jesus, the warrior, now rides to come back and lock up the enemies of God. And John says that, that he has a name. He's called Faithful and True. Jesus is the only faithful person who ever lived. Jesus is the only person who was ever faithful to his father's purposes. Before he went to the cross, in the garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. He could have saved himself from a cross, but he remained faithful to the father. He remained faithful to you and I. He's told us what? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So when life presses in on us, when we struggle, when we suffer, when we're tempted to compromise, Jesus is saying, I'm faithful. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right beside you. I'm the only faithful person who's ever lived. He's the only true person who's ever lived. He never speaks a lie. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word true means reliable. It means genuine. You can't trust anyone but Jesus. So if we stay close to Jesus, we will be true. 
We become like that which we look at, don't we? We become like that, uh, uh, the people we're around. And so if we stay close to Jesus, we'll become true. We'll become the real deal. He goes on to say that in righteousness, he rages war. Now in the Greek, and you always gotta look at stuff in the Greek, that is a present tense verb. It means that right now, in righteousness, now he's waging war. Right now he's fighting on your behalf. He's fighting on my behalf. Tyrants, rulers, throughout history have never had their people's best interests in heart. They're unrighteous. They're not righteous. But Jesus always has his people's best interests at heart. Generals, armies, they've waged unjust wars for millennia. But not Jesus. He wages just war against unrighteousness. Verse 12 says that his eyes are a flame of fire. Eyes are the key to our soul, are they not? If something's wrong with us, a lot of times we can look into each other's eyes and know that, hey, she's not right, he's not right, something's wrong. Lincoln wasn't feeling well this week. You know where we could see it at? In his eyes. They're just droopy. They were, they were tired. But Jesus' eyes are pure. They can see through us into the deepest parts of our souls. His eyes are purifying. So when he looks at us, he convicts us of sin, but then he cleanses us. His eyes burn away our guilt and our shame. So that's why his preacher types are always like, hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. Stop looking at yourself. Stop seeing all the mess ups and all your sinfulness. Look at Jesus, right? He convicts you of sin, but then his eyes burn away that guilt and shame and say, hey, look at me. See what I did. I disarmed the authorities. I've already won. I nailed it to the cross. You're working from the victory, not towards the victory. Next it says, then on his head are many diadems. That's an old-fashioned word. It just means crowns. There's many crowns on his head. It means he's won many victories. In fact, too many victories to count is what that means. Now remember the best that Satan can do is counterfeit everything that God has already done. False trinity. And so if you remember back in Revelation chapter 12, verse three, we have the dragon, Satan, he has seven heads and on his seven heads, he has what? Seven crowns. In Revelation chapter 13, the beast from the sea has 10 heads and 10 crowns on 10 heads. And what's going on here is it's kind of a funny image. It just basically says that Jesus has way more crowns than that. And instead of having to be spread out across seven heads or 10 heads, they're all stacked up on one. He's got them piled as high as he could see. See, it wasn't common, it, was not, it wasn't uncommon for ancient kings to wear more than one crown. So when people would come to visit, they'd be like, well, I want that crown today. Then give me the purple Nike crown, this one. Yeah, let's do that one. So that when people came in, they would go, hey, that, they're, they're kings over many territories, many, many different countries. They've won victories over these different countries. And so Jesus is sitting here with all these crowns on his head saying, I've won many countries. I've won many nations. Abraham Kuyper said there's not a square inch in all the universe in which Jesus doesn't go, mine. It's all mine. And so he's got these crowns to say that I've won many victories. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're one of his victories. I'm one of his victories. Every person on the face of the earth, regardless of language or nation or race or heritage or creed, if they've trusted in Jesus, there's somebody who's been set free from their sin and Jesus has won a victory. I love that. Then it says he has a name no one knows but himself. Names in the Bible reveal something about a person's nature. And it kind of is true in our day and age, right? My family owns a feedlot. Look up Byron, place where cows are kept. That's what it means, no lie. I don't think dad knew that, but that, that's what it means. 
I still laugh at that. But when Jesus is calling his disciples, you remember he meets a fisherman named uh, Simon? You know what Simon means in the original language? It means shifting sand. That's kind of Peter, wasn't it? I mean, that dude started out as shifting sand, like, like the little slave girl's like, hey, hey, yeah, you were with Jesus. He's like, man, I wasn't with Jesus. He gets scared of a 13-year-old girl. He's shifting sand. But then Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 now you're Peter, which means rock. And Peter goes on to be a rock, doesn't he? He, he goes on to be crucified, and not just crucified like Jesus upside down, because he says, man, I wasn't worthy to be crucified like my Lord. See, Jesus gives him a new name for a new character trait. In the Bible, Jesus is called by many names. Perhaps the most famous passage is in Isaiah 9, 6. We're going to read this a lot in the coming weeks. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But also in the ancient world, they believed that if you knew someone's full name, it meant you had control over them. Again, that's true to this day and age. So, so last night, I'm getting ready to do a wedding. I'm walking around in my own little world. You know, just, you know, just, we call that a Friday for me. No big deal. And uh, I hear Byron. What happened? I stopped because somebody called my name, and I turned around because they needed me for something to get ready for the wedding. So it's still true is that if somebody says your name, you're going to stop and turn around and see what they want. If you're a kid, you remember? Your parents still use your full name sometimes? Byron Norton Potter. Don't ask where the Norton came from. No idea. That meant that mom was in control when they used that name. You better stop. You better listen. Jesus has many wonderful names, but it says that there is one name no one knows. That means Jesus is controlled by no one. In verse 13, it says he wears a robe dipped in blood. Now, whose blood is it? That, that's a great debate among theologians. If you want to just go down a rabbit hole, go do it. So, so some say it's the blood of the martyrs. Others say it's the blood of his enemies. Or, or some say it's his own blood. And I'm, I'm inclined to believe that it's his own blood. Because what they're trying to say here is that all the bleeding that needs to be done was done on the cross. No one else's blood needs to be spilt. And it happens for sure. People will die and have died for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't come back to make people bleed. And we'll talk about this in just a second. Right? He says he's the word of God. He's the word of God in his words and in his deeds. He manifests, he reveals the character of God. If you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. Jesus is God. He imperfectly embodies all that God is. He's the expression of God's character. What does John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's followed by the armies of heaven. Who are the armies of heaven? That's us. That's us. Notice the language there. It's very similar to the language we read in Revelation 19, 8. It was granted her, that's us, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's us. We get to join Jesus in his descent back to earth. And then it says, from his mouth comes a sword, John refers to the sword twice, verse 15 and verse 21. And what I want you to notice, because a lot of Christians get this wrong, the sword is not in his hand. The sword's coming from his mouth. The Bible says in his hand are what? The keys to death and hell. 
Jesus doesn't need a sword in his hand. His weapon is his word. It's the only weapon he needs. So in the very beginning, God did what? Spoke. He spoke and he said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus spoke. The wind, the waves obeyed him. Jesus spoke. Demons left. Jesus spoke. People were healed. Jesus only needs to speak on the last day and it's over. That's all he has to do. It's done. And then it says, after he speaks, it all begins. Jesus only has to pull back the curtain and say enough, and it's over, and a whole new world descends. See, the battle's never fought because Jesus speaks. And then he begins to rule, and it says he rules with a rod of iron. So that's an allusion to a shepherd's rod. It'd be an allusion to Psalm 23. Your rod, your staff, it comforts me. It's a rod of iron because nations are stubborn. Nations are hard-headed. And so he will rule them as king of kings and lord of lords. And then it goes on to say that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now again, this is why it's important to read the Bible, study the Bible in original languages at times. So that verb right there that says we'll tread, if you study it and you look it up in the Greek, that is what they call an active imperative. So, so that means that it's actively happening right now. That, that as we speak, he is treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. See, that's why I believe it's his blood on the robe. That this isn't some future thing that's going to happen. It's happening now. His robe is stained because even now he is stamping on the grapes of wrath. So on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the full force of God's wrath for you and I. No blood needs to be shed because Jesus took it for us. That's good news. And on his robe and on his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So folks, everybody listen to me right here. This means that Jesus is king over every nation. Jesus is sovereign over every mayor, governor, and yes, believe it or not, every president. He's sovereign over every institution, over every corporation, and yes, believe it or not, every single government. So in the first century, when Caesar would enter the Senate chambers, everyone stood and shouted, and you know what they, they were required to shout? Caesar's king of kings and lord of lords. Christians took that and said, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, hey, Caesar, guess what? There's somebody above you. <laughs> Odds are you're not going to meet him one day. Well, you might. You're not going to like it. Meaning that there's somebody above you that will be around long after you've left this earth. So as Christians, do you believe that today? I mean, that Jesus is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords over every president, whether you like him or not. Presidents will come and go. Guess what? He's going to outlast them all. Nations are going to come and go. This nation may not ever be what it was supposed to be again. I don't know. But guess what? Jesus will outlast it. Jesus is going to reign over it, and he will come back one day. And in verses 18 through, through 21, or excuse me, 17 through 21, he, he's going to show us what's going to happen to, to God's enemies. So look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Wonderful scene. Now remember, that's just figurative language. It's figurative. The behind the scenes enemies of God line up. They're ready to fight. They think, here we go. We're gonna get him. Jesus shows up, speaks a word, battles over. Nothing happens. The beast, the false prophet, they're captured. They're thrown into the lake of fire alive. Everyone else is slain. That's just another way of saying that they join them separated from God for all eternity. Verses 17 and 21, I get it, they're gory, but remember there's nothing said in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament. It's just Old Testament language to describe defeat. The most famous example are David's words to Goliath. Do you remember this? First, well, they, you don't teach this part in Sunday school or flannel graph, right? But verse 17, or chapter 17, verses 46 through 47, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. It's just a way of indicating defeat and humiliation for all of God's enemies. Satan thinks he's going to win, and he can't. The battle's already been won. Jesus shows up, he speaks, it's finished, it's over, and we get to reign with Jesus forever and ever. But what I want you to notice is that there's two suppers described in Revelation chapter 19. You starting to get the pattern here? Get the marriage supper of the Lamb and the supper of God. So one of those is a joyous occasion. We get new clothes, we get to eat, we get to be married, we get to be with Jesus, we get to fellowship and worship, and it's gonna be awesome. But the other one is separation and torment in hell. So back to chapter 12. You're either with the dragon or the lamb. You're either a part of the new Jerusalem or you belong to the prostitute, Babylon. You either attend the marriage supper of the lamb or the supper of God. And there is no in-between. So let me just ask you today. Is what we've just read, is that your hope? That Jesus is coming back? I mean, does that fill you with excitement to know that one day he's coming back? And not, well, he's kind of, sort of, maybe, I hope, I don't know if he's coming back or not, kind of, kind of hope. No, like Jesus is coming back. Like a strong, confident expectation that it will happen. And I don't know why he hasn't. I, I get it. I think so many of us, especially if you're my age and a little bit younger, you, you're burned out on hearing he's coming back because you sat through sermon after sermon after sermon when you were kids where guys got their timeline up on the wall and they made all these assertions about, well, here's a Saddam Hussein and uh, he's the Antichrist and then he's going to bring with him, right? Some of you sat through those sermons. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So when we talk about this stuff, you roll your eyes and go, oh, I've heard it a million times, Byron. I get it. He's coming back. No, he's coming back and he will show up and all he has to do is speak and it's all going to come to an end but let me tell you this in closing he's speaking right now in heaven he's speaking right now he's fighting for our souls and he comes to us and he speaks to us through his word every time we open it and read it 
He's speaking to us. Every time we come in here and we hear it proclaimed and preached and taught, he's speaking to us. And I love it because the sword's in his mouth. So what it tells us is this, is that he gets really, really close to us. He leans in and he says something like maybe, hey, you, I don't, I don't know who you are. Quit wasting time. Right? Prepare for action. Stop putting me off. Turn from your sins. Trust me. Know that my blood is enough. I took the wrath that was reserved for you. Trust in me today. Don't leave here without trusting in me. To some of us, he comes up close and he leans in. He says, hey, I forgive you. That sin that you can't get over, quit wallowing in it. Quit allowing guilt to paralyze you. I forgive you. Get yourself back up and get going. To some of you, he's leaning in and saying, hey, that decision, you know what it is. It's not right. Don't do it. It's gonna cost you far more than you wanna pay. Don't do it. Turn around right now. To some of you, he's leaning in right now. He's saying, be free. I beat your sin. You're not enslaved to it anymore. Be free. To some of you, listen to me. He's leaning in right now and he's going, I get it. Relationships are hard right now. I know they are. Keep loving them. Don't stop loving them. Forgive them. 70 times 70 forgiven. Don't stop. You're not responsible for their behavior. I I don't care how they treat you. You're responsible for yours. So don't get even. Don't get mad. Don't retaliate. Forgive. To some of you, he's leaning in, and I think this is a lot of you, and he's saying, hey, don't be afraid. That's the number one command in this book. Don't be afraid. I know the world looks scary. I know things are getting hard. It all seems so dark. Don't be afraid. I already won. Get your eyes off of everything around you and get them on me. To some of us, he leans in and this is what he says. He says, I know that life has thrown you some curveballs. I know it hasn't worked out like you thought it was. I know it's hard. I know you're hurting. But keep hoping against hope. It may not all be fixed on this side of heaven. But one day it'll all be made right. One day I'm coming back and all I gotta do is speak and there's gonna be no more pain, no more suffering. And all your sufferings, all your difficulty, it's gonna seem so light compared to the eternity that waits for you. Everything will be greater because of what you go through here. And so John's saying, guess what? Heaven was opened and the only hope that is sure and solid is riding on a horse to battle and his name is Jesus. And that is the only hope, that is the only person worthy of your confidence and trust today, church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this day and I thank you for your word and I thank you that you are coming back. I thank you that even now you're pressing in on this world. And we have a strong, confident expectation that you will do everything that you said you would. So Father, help us leave here today knowing that that is true and that we would set our eyes on the hope that is coming our way. Father, I believe with all my heart that you've spoken today through your word, through the sword that's in your mouth. And so I pray today that that whatever we need to do in this room, that, that we would do it, Father. So maybe where we're at privately, we just need to ask you for forgiveness and we need to repent of some sin and turn away. Maybe we need to leave here today and we need to reconcile with a brother or sister. Father, some of us just need to to leave here today knowing that we don't need to be afraid because we're working from victory, not towards a victory. You've already won. 
And then every one of us need to stand right now and sing to the only one who is worthy of everything. And his name is Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.